Hello and welcome to another episode of the CyberSec Migrant. My name is Femi. I'm your host. If you are new to the channel, welcome. We hope you enjoy the content put out here. We put out cybersecurity content related to the industry at the moment and also stuff that new immigrants to Canada can find useful as they start to uh, build up a career in cybersecurity in here. And if you're a returning subscriber, thank you and welcome. Uh, thank you for watching another one of our videos. Uh, if you listen to this on Spotify or any of our podcast platforms, we suggest you follow the show so you don't miss any new episodes when we release them. And if you're here on YouTube, consider subscribing to the channel and ringing the notification bell so you can get updated when we have new episodes. Today, I have a guest on the channel and we're going to be having a very interesting conversation. Uh, my guest today is Anthony Green, who is a highly motivated and accomplished security professional. He's got a proven track record of success in managing security operations and compliance. Uh, he's the manager of security operations and compliance at CPABC, which is the umbrella body for professional accountants in British Columbia. And he leads a team responsible for developing and implementing a comprehensive security program. He also has expertise in vendor management and also has a talent for balancing the needs of security, uh, staff security, security of staff, uh, security of vendors to achieve optimal outcomes. Uh, another thing that you may not know about Anthony that I do know is he loves giving back through teaching and leading academic programs. So he is the program lead for cybersecurity programs at the University of British Columbia, which is one of the most prestigious universities in all of Canada, I would dare say. Uh, and he's currently building a comprehensive professional certification in cybersecurity program management. And he has a passion for sharing his knowledge and his expertise, which is demonstrated by his role as an instructor of the cybersecurity strategy and risk management micro-credential at UBC. So if you've been thinking of getting the micro-credential to improve your uh, academic outcomes, Anthony's your man. And finally, in addition to those pursuits, he's also committed to giving back to the community, volunteering his time. And he recently finished a tenure as the immediate past president of ISACA Vancouver's chapter, and he also previously held the role of vice president and communications director. So he's everywhere, you know, academia, community, and he's very active in the mentorship community as well, actively mentoring students, young graduates looking to help them land their first opportunities. So who better to talk about the cybersecurity industry than somebody who is in the academia, in the community, and knows everything about that. So welcome, Anthony. Thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. Um, I was having a conversation recently with someone and you were like, oh, we're trying to hire staff, but we can't find any staff to hire. And that seems a contrast to, you know, you see all these ads and all these news articles that say there's a deficit of 3.5 million or whatever the number is, jobs in cybersecurity between now and 2030. So it sometimes seems like, a, you know, how do you correlate those two different thoughts? So. To ask someone who is in the field, someone who is an expert, what's your perspective on the current state of the cybersecurity landscape, particularly for Canada, and how is it evolving? So those are some great. That's that's a great starting question, and um, you know, from my experience, you know, what I've noticed is we have two where there's two sides of the stick, right? There's a whole bunch of entry level people that if you look at any entry level cybersecurity um, position on LinkedIn or something you'll see 200, 300 applicants. Now, if you go, and then if you still talk to all these companies and say, there's no one out there, right? There's not enough people out there. And what I think is the issue is that um, we, over the past year or two, we've been touting not enough jobs, not enough jobs, and people have started to go into cybersecurity. 
but you know there still isn't that many people that have, are senior in the industry a lot of the more senior people in the industry have especially during covid have either retired a lot of them have started their own businesses they work for themselves now they're consultants um and that because the industry was so small to begin with that leaves a gap of intermediate to um you know senior level uh industry professionals so when those organizations are saying that they can't find enough people they what they're really saying is they can't find enough uh mid to senior type people there is many many junior people now the issue is also the fact that everyone's looking for a unicorn right everyone's looking for somebody <laughs> with 2 to 4 years of managing this managing that blah 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 what people don't realize is sometimes uh having maybe like a sysadmin that's been a sysadmin for 5 7 years um and is only just getting into cybersecurity is actually more valuable than somebody that's been in cybersecurity for a year or two because they're easy to these sysadmins may be easier to train uh and can should understand these policies because they understand the foundations right so it's kind of um you know an issue of also these organizations that want these unicorns they're not willing to uh train people up a lot of time and sometimes it's not because they're not willing to it's because they don't know how which is where these education programs um come in where you know a lot of education we see is not necessarily just students trying to get into cybersecurity but it's professionals trying to move into cybersecurity as well um and i think that's really the way we fill the gap is by finding parallel uh industries that work well with cybersecurity whether it be auditors like CPAs right uh whether that can become CISAs uh whether it's sysadmins that become uh security architects right um that's really where we need to look to find this mid to senior talent and for junior talent it's simply you know now that we've it's same thing that happened with software engineering people kept saying not enough software engineers they make lots of money so a lot of juniors come in and a lot of them expect to have jobs because there's such a there's such a gap but really the ones that do get the jobs right away are the ones that go above and beyond right the ones that yeah, program and just start applying on linkedin they it's hard for them to compete versus the ones that go to networking events that have a, a strong personal portfolio uh have done ctfs right it's um the bar has been raised you no longer can just be can just come from school and expect a job in cybersecurity you almost never can because some people also think that it's a uh intermediate senior level role but now the bar has been raised so that's kind of my perception on the gap the gap is really more in the mid to senior level i think um because everybody wants to hire a security analyst that can manage their entire security program right yeah. you don't want to put your security operations center in the hands of a novice no one's going to do that so um and i completely agree with you uh, that sometimes it's a matter of managing different expectations um and like you said education is one of the challenges that that's there because there isn't enough people with the right education and not just the academic classroom education but also the hands on education you get in the role But aside from education what are some other present challenges you would see in terms of growing that that growing need for cybersecurity talent particularly in Canada let's focus on Canada since we're here after all Sure um I think uh 
for the talent, like, are you talent as in uh, students going, like, getting their first opportunities? Or are you saying kind of um, getting organizations to get uh, students into the program, into their, sorry, their uh, organizations? A bit um, of both should be fine, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things that, you know, one of the issues is that there's not enough mentorship. Um, what you'll notice is the organizations that have good mentorship within the organizations, they have great security teams, but not only great security teams, but great security alumni, right? People will go to an organization, get their skills and move and go to another organization, build up a similar program there. Um, because, you know, with cybersecurity, it's having somebody to kind of guide you and tell you what's actually needed, what does the business care about is, is very important. Um, and the mentorship aspect is, I think, in that one of the things that can help get students more opportunities, but also once you have gone through this program and somebody has mentored you, there's a good chance that once you get to a certain level, you'll mentor students yourself. And it comes and becomes kind of the snowball, right? And that's really where we want to get to. Um, but unfortunately, you know, many people that are in IT are not necessarily um, looking to be mentors. A lot of them, a lot of IT people are technical, uh, introverted, like to kind of, you know, sit at their computer, get their work done and be done for the day. When it comes to mentorship, it's a very different type of skill set. And we don't see as much of that in, in this field. Um, so what I would say is uh, invest in leadership in your security team. Um, in your organization and go look at co-op programs because all you need is one leader, one security leader, whether that's your engineer, your architect, whatever you want to be, it doesn't even have to be a manager, right? A leader, uh, even a, a security PM and go look at the government Canadian programs because you can get m much of your students um, uh, wage reimbursed by the government. Yeah. And just by investing in a little bit of leadership, um, and basically getting these federal government grants, you can grow your security team quite easily um, and have someone ready to take that role in case your leader, you know, what, what we've also seen is there's a, a big turnaround. Every three to five years, people are leaving jobs. What happens if your security leader leaves, right? You need to have somebody ready. Otherwise, you're going to be paying uh, your arm and leg for somebody that's at that level or um, somebody that's a higher level so they can be onboarded quickly. So you also have to think about who's your succession, right? So um, investing in mentorship and co-op students, I think, is one of the ways that um, as a country we can help bolster our security economy. I, I, I completely agree with that as well. And you know, just a bit of a digression. I'm also one of those people who have a different background. So my original degree is actually in chemistry, and I've got a second degree in pharmaceutical chemistry, but I've worked in IT for the last what, 12, 13 years. So I, I know what it's like, you know, and I find most times it's people who have that sort of experience who have, you know, they've seen the other side of things. So when they come in here, they know what it's like and they're willing to actually, you know, mentor people, get them back up to that speed. So that's, that's the way it usually is. Not to knock the nerds, the perception after is that, you know, all IT folks are geeks or nerds. So, which isn't always true, <laughs> I want to say, but, you know, sometimes, yes, that's what it is. So one of the things you want to do is change that. But just to, divert from that a little bit, you know, if you think about those gaps, for example, you've mentioned mentorship, you've mentioned, uh, you know, those skills, 
Now, let's leave the enterprises for a minute. How do you think that the academia can play a role in addressing those gaps, you know, mentorship? Because one of the things people have complained about is not many programs have those skills hands on ready. So they teach you all the theory, but not the practical part of it. So how can the academia help to narrow those gaps that exist? Yeah, so the classic catch-22 with this is that how do you gain security skills, but people don't want to trust an entry-level person to do security because that can lead to a lot of uh, other problems, right? Um, and so I think, you know, schools, um, what they need to do is, I think, case studies and practical assignments are the most important thing you can do, right? Um, yes, theory is great, but I'm a big fan of labs so that when something actually, if you do get the opportunity to do this in your organization, you'll already have done this once before and you'll just um, implement on that, uh, move on, move up on that process. Now, the other thing is um, organizations need to have, need. this is why the leadership piece is important. There's a lot of value that an entry-level cybersecurity person can do with read-only access, right? Like that's, there. you don't need to give them admin access. You can get them started on security awareness training, get them to write phishing campaigns, right? Get them to do the first version of policies where all they have to do is interview the technical leads and go um, put those policies in place to make sure, you know, these things aren't, you know, it's not rocket science. There's a lot of uh, way, like, you don't need to ask them to strategize your next three years. You can get them to do some very low level things. And that's why mentorship and leadership is important because once you've gone through it, you know what needs to be done. And once you've been mentored through it, you can take that program and put it back to your students or your, your own mentees, right? You know, there's a lot of entry, like, uh, you know, security awareness is one of them. Uh, they can create infographics and PSAs for the company. Um, they can, you know, monitor some alerting that you have, um, you know, uh, create policies. Uh, different, there's lots, and that's already a good amount of workload that will be off of leadership's plate, right? So um, that's what I think. Yeah, I hope those those two answers kind of answer your question there. Yeah, it does help. You know, I I that I remember a long time ago. I remember then. This is one of my earlier in my career. I was speaking to someone. And it was like, well, when you knew people come in, all you do, all, all all you are is you're a monkey, you're a wrench monkeys, but that's all you do. You do all the low level stuff, which he, he wasn't being, you know, he wasn't denigrating or being, uh, you know trying to look down but i understand that because how else are you going to get the experience if you don't get yeah. your hands dirty by doing all of those things so it's very important um, and i exactly. think that's the way to learn it's you know, like math got to... right you gotta exactly. you gotta know what what how to do the math before you start using the calculator right exactly yes otherwise you don't learn you don't know the principle behind it which is what it exactly. is exactly so um but now now to take and you, sorry well what, one last thing i wanted to add there the other thing is uh, post-secondary is what they can do is they can uh, help. Uh, a lot of times, I think what they need is to help students push them to do more CTFs, have programs yes. with communities yes. that are integrated, um, because a lot of times these are student-led programs. And what happens when this enthusiastic set of student leaves, maybe the next set of students isn't as enthusiastic, and that program kind of falls apart. There needs to be, I think, a little bit more post-secondary involvement um, from, from their leadership as well. 
Okay, sorry. Which is, back to you. Which is fine. That's true. And I think, like, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this started when you were president of Isaka with the um, post-secondary outreach to actually get post-secondary a bit more involved in cybersecurity and all of that. So in case you didn't know, that's Anthony's idea. Thank you very much for doing that. I'm involved in that. You know, we've got we have the BCIT, SFU, UBC all involved. And almost every event, we've got a CDF where people are, you know, getting their hands dirty. So it really helps. And speaking of the students, now I know that a large number of Canadian higher institutions have a lot of international students As in their student population. We know it's one of the things that the schools do in particular for so many reasons. We're not discussing that here. But, you know, how do you think these international students can actually contribute also to that talent shortage? Because there's a lot of them in IT programs. Yeah. So I actually, um, I'm a really big fan of international students. And I think that's one of the, the, the ways that we're going to keep ourselves. Cause I don't think we're getting enough local students. International mm -hmm. students is how we're going to be able to continue growing a lot of these positions. Now the, issue that I find with international students is there varies um, from international students that are coming here to bring their family over and that are head first. They really want to get everything going. Um, and then the ones that are here just to, because, you know, maybe they're wealthy back in their country and their family sent them to go get some education. And what I find right now is those that really put their head down, that go to events, that listen to advice, uh, many of the ones uh, do get opportunities and are able to get jobs, but it's the ones that expect jobs to come to them are the ones that not only don't get jobs, but they also sometimes make their post-secondary institution look bad, um, right? Um, and so I think it's that's why as an international student, uh, actually not even just an international, local students have the same issue, right? When I was at uh, BCIT, um, you know, I think 60 or 70% of my class was international. I was competing with, for the same jobs with them. Um, now, the, the one thing, the other thing that, the thing that internationals get a disadvantage is that they, for them, a lot of times it's an uphill battle of learning our culture. Um, and that sometimes, luckily, you know, I would say Vancouver is one of the better places because most of most of our population is either immigrants, first-gen immigrants, or even second-gen. You know, my parents were immigrants, yeah. right? So luckily, Vancouver isn't a place that's going to necessarily, um, it's not going to hurt you as much as it would in other places, but it is still an uphill battle. And a lot of the international students I've met, because they're not comfortable uh, with the language, they come, they come off as very shy and introverted. And as a, as a teacher, you know, I've, t once I get through the layers, I find out how great these students are. Maybe they've had even years of experience already and they're just a fantastic hire, but because on the outside they're shy and hard to get across, it's really hard for people to even notice that. Right. So I think for international students, it's for them, they need to work. Well, actually, I think right now, anybody not even local students, they need to, because there's kind of a flood of students coming into tech, you need to stand out. And yeah, if you're an international yeah. student, you need to go to networking events um, so people know your name. So when you're graduating, 
you already have two or three people that are waiting for you to graduate to give you an interview, right? If you're a local yeah. student, same thing. Um, and if you're an international student, maybe you just need to practice a little bit more uh, being comfortable. Um, and yeah. especially in tech, you know, like we said, a lot of introverts, um, that's why it's kind of, it hurts twice as much for international students that aren't yeah. comfortable and are introverts. You know, these days, if you even just apply online, 10 times you're lucky if once you get a reply back not an interview yeah. just a reply right so true. true all of my best opportunities i've received were from networking from being at the right place at the right time i've no students that uh, got a job uh, at an isac event because they ran into a hiring manager at the right place at the right time right there you go and, yeah and so the question for international students what i like to always say is Look at the students around you. Pretend you're all going for the exact same job. Now, obviously, you're not. There's different specializations in the fields. What's going to make the, the, the manager say that you stand out more than the person beside you? Person. And if you See. can't answer that, then you're going to have a much more difficult time. Yeah, I com completely and totally agree with that. And I, 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 I understand how it is. I wasn't... I wasn't an international student when I was in school here. Yeah, I was I was actually domestic, but I had lots of international students as friends. So I know the struggle that they're facing. And also having been an immigrant myself, I understand that. Um, and it, it's sometimes challenging, you know, for them. And mm -hmm. I also found out, well, I find that many of those students, because it's not just in the past, it's the same today. Many of those international students happen to be very, sometimes, well, trained already from their home countries and you know they're yeah. coming here to get that additional education just to round round it out for them which i find funny because i say to people you're working on a sql server in nigeria is it different from the sql server in canada or in bangladesh sql is the same anywhere there's no difference yeah so it's just the cultural tones that make it slightly different you know how do things work in canada how do they work in nigeria and culturally they could be different and I will say there's a few organizations that I know of personally that know this very well and have taken advantage of it completely because they go to international students first to see which ones of them already have years of experience. Um, and then they basically grab them um, while, while they're still at school and finishing up school. But again, that's only a few organizations that go and look out. As an international student, make yourself visible, which means maybe have yeah. that full decked out LinkedIn for every single keyword, right? When you go yeah. introduce yourself, you don't introduce yourself as a student. Yes, you're a student, but you introduce yourself as a working professional that with years of experience that happens to be doing uh, upgraded you know, education in Canada, right? It's the exactly. mindset that you put yourself against, right? You're not entry level just because you come to Canada, especially in tech. Um, you're entry level if you act like you're entry level. Exactly. Fake it till you make it, perhaps, if you will. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Now, now speaking speaking of that, because like I said, they have experiences. How do you think, you know, if we if companies are able to actually bring these international students into their enterprises to work with them, how do you think the diverse backgrounds and experiences of these students can actually positively impact our cybersecurity landscape as a whole because they have like I said they've got experiences how can they help yeah so I can look at this from two points of view um, okay. one of them is from 
the professional background. Um, the interest, like the thing is, uh, there's lots of professional backgrounds that are parallel that you can meld into cybersecurity quite well. For example, before cybersecurity, I was in digital marketing. Um, how does that relate to cybersecurity? Well, guess what? Security awareness is pretty much just digital marketing and understanding how to do a sales funnel helps me build the culture of my security awareness program, turning into a security culture much better, which then leads to nobody complaining about phishing. You know, maybe it can lead to bigger budget from executives, stuff like that. It all comes together, right? From a business background, you can, there's a lot of security auditing, privacy. There's a lot of parallel industries that have parallel skills. Um, so the more diverse you have, the more different mindset you can put on. If you ask a bunch of technical people how to do security awareness, none of them will ever tell you, hey, let's set up a sales funnel with a top of the funnel, medium of the funnel, and bottom <laughs> of the funnel kind of thing for yeah, our, true. Uh, right? Um, you know, if you don't talk to an educator, you're not going to say we need, you know, auditory learning, visual learning, uh, kinetic learning, all the different types of learning, right? These different jobs have different things that can, you just need to be, Really, all you need to be is creative enough to see your parallels, right? Yeah, Almost every true. industry has some kind of way. Even, for example, let's say um, chefs in a kitchen, in a busy kitchen, being able to work under such pressure would be amazing for instant response because instant response is basically working under pressure uh, all the different time. There's tons of parallel skills. Um, now let's talk about the cultural uh, aspect of a diverse background. You know, there's, you know, as we all know, there's lots of different cultures. You know, Canada is a cultural melting pot and different cultures, you know, come with different personalities. Um, and the more, you know, a lot of them, a lot of people's backgrounds are different. A lot of them are based on different cultures. And I think the more diverse you have in your organization, which means the more different viewpoints you get, uh, right? So different, you know, I'm sure that doing, like, for example, if you have somebody that did security uh, let, in, let's say, India versus China, right? This is where we have get lots of international students. Mm -hmm. I bet that it's looked at somebody that's had previous experience. Um, it's different in one country than the other. Probably very different uh, in Russia than it is in Ukraine or, you know, uh, the U.S., right? And putting all of those kind of hats together, being able to uh, have as much perspective as possible, I think gives you the best results um, because you're removing different types of biases, right? Um, yeah. So I think that, you know, those having a diverse kind of uh, professional and cultural background in the end kind of come together and allow you to reduce as many biases as possible uh, because these, you know, a lot of people will look at risk a very different way. And True. in cybersecurity, it's one of the most subjective fields there are because if you ask <laughs> 40, there's actually a saying I love to say. If you ask, uh, like, a, if you ask uh, 20 CPAs, right, or, or CFOs, 20 CFOs how to do financials, they'll all give you the same answer. If you ask 20 different CISOs how to do security, they'll give you 30 different answers. <laughs> True. Yes, I completely and totally agree. And that's just the way security is, right? It's just the way it is. Um, now, because you've, you've talked on a couple of interesting things about how, you know, culturally it's sometimes difficult for international students or new immigrants entering the workforce. 
Are there any, now this is speaking to your academic, your academic background, your academic position. Are there any uh, initiatives or programs that you think universities can implement or already implementing to sort of support these immigrants and these international students in, you know, seamlessly getting into the industry, you know, and starting those careers and being successful? Because, yes, it's like you said, it's one thing to be here, it's one thing to get in there, and it's, it's different. So, any initiatives, any programs that, you know, high institutions can do or implement to help that transition be smoother for these um, international students? Sure. I mean, one of the things, uh, and this is speaking to international students in the past, um, one of the things that they found very um, effective is when post-secondaries have their own kind of events for international students. Because um, it's not, if you're an international student and you don't know how Vancouver culture is, how the culture here is like at all, um, how are you going to go find a networking event, right? You don't know those events. Um, and also providing knowledge to students how to find events in their own industries, I think is very important because one thing that I hear constantly is that a lot of international students come here and the ones that come by themselves feel very lonely. And if you're lonely, True. everything becomes so much more and more, more difficult, right? Having that support group of friends and, you know, I've seen a lot of the cool thing is that they bring uh, all the international students together. And so you'll have students from absolutely different countries that sometimes have broken English, all becoming best friends and growing together. And then you go in five years, uh, you see them all like kind of uh, norm, like now, you know, Canadian citizens still hanging out. And you and you see that the connection they made at the beginning really helped them get through, especially the first year or two is usually the hardest. Especially if you're going to school, it's expensive here, right? Unless you have a whole bunch of money to live off of, you're probably working. There's students that are working, you know, 20 to 40 hours a week while doing school 20 to 40 hours a week. And it gets a lot. So well, the best thing, I think, this, as students, what you can do is you can make the effort to go to networking events. I know you'll be tired. You'll, you know, you might have stuff to do. But I think it's something that needs to be, you need to push yourself to do. And uh, universities need to continue organizing these events, as well as um, like um, providing not only providing students, but students taking the opportunities to learn about other similar type of events uh, or networking groups. For example, if you're in cybersecurity in Vancouver, if you're on the compliance governance risk side, we have ISACA events. If you're a penetration tester, we have OWASP events, OWASP. And both of these organizations try to run monthly events. So whether you're on one side or the other, you can go find some peers and make some friends. But you wouldn't have known that unless you know somebody that probably told you about it or you knew where to Google and where to look, right? For example, ISAC is on Eventbrite. OWASP is on Meetup, right? It's not like everybody talks together and says, we're using this one platform for all of Vancouver. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. doing their own thing. There's probably another cybersecurity organization that I don't even know about that's pretty big and meets up. I don't know, right? But it's getting yourself out there, getting yourself involved in the community. Um, I think is is something that's gonna that helps, um, especially on the mental level. And the networking definitely um, doesn't hurt. It does not. I agree. And one of the things, like when I first moved here as well several years ago, I 
one of well, the, one of the attractions to Vancouver was just the diversity in Vancouver. It's amazing, and it's got a fantastic food scene. So, if you want to enjoy international food, come to Vancouver. Oh yeah. But also, in a way, because there's a lot of international students here, from sometimes now this is the security side of things. There's a lot going on in the news about different countries, and this is you know some some companies wouldn't even allow you to work remotely from certain parts of the world just because of certain things. And we've got a lot of international students sometimes from these parts of the world. So how do those, you know, and with the evolving, you know, the deepening of privacy laws and regulations and how all of that ties into security, as well as this huge influx of cybersecurity professionals from international destinations such as these, how do you think these evolving privacy laws and regulations, as well as that international student talent coming into Canada can all sort of contribute to that industry, strengthening it or taking out whatever weaknesses we might perceive due to those regulations? Yeah, I personally, um, I'm not aware of, uh, you know, I haven't done my research into this, so it's hard for me to speak on. I know there are some, I'm just not too aware of them. Um, and I don't know, um, you know, I know for private companies, um, most of the time it should be okay unless you're working directly with a government company or something like that. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but I would assume that after you are a full citizen, um, those uh, those guide or those um, restrictions would be removed. Um, I'm now again, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, and Vancouver, luckily, well, Western Canada, well, I guess luckily in this case, um, but unluckily in other <laughs> cases, we don't have a big federal government um, branch here. So there's a lot more private companies here than you would. Well, there's a lot more companies in general in Toronto, um, but the mix, we have a lot less kind of government regulated um, here than like uh, percentage wise. So yeah. it wouldn't be as much of an issue as say, like, let's say Ottawa rather than Toronto. Right? True, Ottawa true. is where you'd come, on, come up to that issue a lot more than than banking. Yeah, and, it's and everyone probably, needs a security clearance. Yeah, that's that's what it is. It's probably just issues with security clearance, and um, yeah, yeah. I haven't had much experience in that, so um, I think that there. I just hope there's enough opportunities without that as well. Right, I I believe there is. I believe there is because I know quite a few private companies, some really big ones. Uh, I don't want to mention any names because I'm not being sponsored. If anyone wants to sponsor us, you know, talk to me. Uh, but there's <laughs> some programs that um they actually do, particularly with getting in new talent from schools and all of that. I personally was I I got my current role through networking, and it was even before I was done with school. So I exactly know what that that is like, and that's what you said. Um, so just sort of to sort of bring this all sort of to a close, let's just sort of looking ahead. How can we take the combined efforts of local talent, international contributors, so domestic students, international students, companies, academic institutions, how can we take all of that together? What would be your advice or your recommendation to bring that together to sort of secure Canada's cybersecurity ecosystem? Because I was speaking with someone this afternoon and he we're, we're actually contrasting how in Europe, there's a huge push by the EU government for privacy regulations, data privacy regulations. It's big. Conversely, in the United States, there isn't any federal regulation really around that. You've got the California one, but that's about it. 
there's no real further one. So that's two different, you know, two different outlooks from two different parts of the world. So I know we're not quite like the US, but we're not at the level of the GDPR. So how can all of this sort of come together to help us be better with cybersecurity and privacy and all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think even Canada, we've started. There's some security laws um, that we have started implementing, so we're on the right track. Um, we are yeah. a little bit behind, I would say. Um, yeah. But you know, it's also because of the size of our country. We're not too many people either, so it's it's a really hard balance. Um, yeah. I think really what it comes down to is uh, some education. Um, because a lot of companies don't need to take the data that they're taking. You know, people just had a data kind of um, mindset of the more data I have, the more liable I am, right? They would take a lot less data. People used to say data is the new oil. Now is data is the new fire, you know? The more <laughs> data you have, the more chance you can get Blow up. fire. The more of a target you are. Yeah, the more burned you get, right? So. Yeah. I think that's uh, that's something that we need to keep in mind for sure for privacy. And you know, the thing is, most the reason why I don't see it as too much of an issue here in Canada is because most Canadian companies that are looking to become big companies, they will get GDPR certified and ISO certified because they're going to be looking outside. Of Canada. Yeah. Um, and so. You know, unfortunately, it's not Canada driving that regulation, but a lot of Canadian companies will get it anyway. Um, but really, I think, you know, my the, the way that we're going to, in my opinion, is the big thing that we as cybersecurity leaders can do in Canada to help drive cybersecurity growth is become mentors, right? Go to your organization, figure out how you can get a you know a cybersecurity analyst funded for the first year um, by government grants, right? And become a mentor, become that mentor to get people's doors in in the foot in the door, and rotate every year, rotate every two years. I don't know, put it as a contract, two year contract, one year contract position, so you can get somebody's foot in the door and keep going. But really, I think you know there we have enough cybersecurity leaders. And it's not that expensive to bring on these juniors. It's just a matter of the cybersecurity leaders taking the initiative of mentorship and yeah, that's... convincing the organization to bring them on. And if you know all the managers did that, or even half the managers, we'd be able to hire a lot more people, and we'd put a lot more experience in, in people um, in a lot of, in these entry level uh, candidates. And the last thing is, it never hurts if the government wants more cybersecurity people, they can give a fund, they can open up a fund for just cybersecurity junior employees. Yeah, they have co-ops, but if you want to push cybersecurity, you can create one specifically for cybersecurity, and you can just get a lot of these entry-level positions jobs. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And the grants are, like I said, the grants are there. So it's like leaving money on the table if you don't use them. So we've we've, we've exactly. talked about a lot, and I really I really had fun having this conversation with you. So, um, what I wanted to ask now is: so a lot of our audience is you know new immigrants or new to cybersecurity, looking to get their feet wet, looking to start their career. What 
if 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 any of them was standing in front of you right now and saying, "Hey, Anthony, I need you to give me two pieces of advice that would make me or help me become successful as I'm launching my cybersecurity career," what would what would those two pieces of advice or they be? I'll give you three. Okay, um, that's better. They go together. <laughs> they go together. Um, usually, there's in from what I see, there's three ways that people get their first job in cybersecurity. One is either formal education, so go to a private college, uh, UBC, a VCC, SFU, whatever. Two is get certifications, so get your ISACA, CISA, CSIM, ISC squared, CISSP, your um, uh, OSCP, CompTIA, CEH, right? If you don't know what these acronyms are, Google them, um, but they're industry uh, certifications. Yeah. And then three is networking. Right, you can get a job doing one of the three. So you can come here and just get a you know diploma. Um, however, the more you do, the more easier it will be to get a job. Again, if I'm a student, I come in, I finish my program, I have my program. The guy beside me, he's been going to networking events for the entire year, so a bunch of people already know him, and he's gotten the industry certification. He's probably going to get better. hired before me, right? Absolutely. So, those are the three key things we see. And the more of them you do, the higher chances. If you're starting to look for jobs as soon as you graduate, it's too late. You should start looking a year before. You should start building yeah. that network because that network takes a little while to build. And so if you start building it a year before, maybe eight months in is when you get your first opportunity. Somebody says, hey, we're looking for a job. But guess what? You're graduating in three months. So you already have a job before you even graduate, right? So exactly. it will never be instant. It's always about building relationship. And these relationships take a little while to come to give you something. And the last thing, yeah. last thing I'll say is don't go into, I guess that would have been my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice here, then I'll just leave it at two, is don't go into conversations looking for something. Look for what you can give. Don't go in yeah. and say take. I don't. Don't go in with your resume and say I want the job. You know, go in as a conversation in a conversation. Give some. Give some kind of uh, advice or have a great conversation. Maybe it's not the first time you meet someone that you ask them for a job. Maybe you meet them two or three times before you're comfortable enough doing that. Right. So, um, don't uh, think about what you can give versus what what you can take. Um, and that's how you should uh, go into these new relationships for networking. Yeah, thank you. So I took what I took out of that is three things. Educate, certify, network. Those are the three things. So if you're trying to get into the industry, those are your three buzzwords that you need. Educate, certify, network. And once you have all of those in place, then you know you can start to see success at the end of the tunnel, but you still have to do the work. But anyway, it's, exactly. been, it's been a very interesting conversation today. Thank you so much, Anthony. It was nice having this conversation. I didn't notice the time go by, so it's been, it's been very good. Um, I'm going to put a link down to Anthony's LinkedIn profile in the comments. So if you, I mean, in the description for this video. So if you want to connect, uh, you can connect Anthony on LinkedIn. I'm also going to put a link to the Isaka website as well, Isaka Vancouver chapter website. So if you want to find out all about the um, networking events that we do and the mentorship program, there's also information there as well. If, you did, if there's anything you want and we don't, you don't see that in the, in the description, leave a comment down below and or answer one of the poll questions if you're on Spotify. 
or put in the Q and A if you're on any of on Spotify and listen to this podcast, and we will definitely get back to you on that. But on behalf of the audience today, I want to say thank you to Anthony for joining us today. It's been a very interesting conversation, and I'm sure the audience knows a little bit better now how to actually succeed in that career at cybersecurity. So thank you very much, Anthony. And to the audience, we hope you enjoyed today's um, episode. If you consider giving it a like, if you're on YouTube, consider subscribing. If you're on Spotify or, or any of the podcast platforms, consider following the show so that you don't miss new episodes when they're released. And until next time, thank you very much and see you again.